Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hello, podcast listeners. Thank you for finding your way back. Hopefully you're on a run or something listening to us and all is good in your life. My guest today is Elliot Schmuckler, the founder and CEO of Anomalo. Elliot had a very interesting bio. He is formerly a product and engineering executive at several companies, Wealthfront, LinkedIn, eBay, and Instacart. And he left Instacart three years ago to build a solution to one of their biggest problems, which is data quality, something very close to my heart. He is now, again, the founder and CEO of Anomalo, which just, I don't know how long ago this was, but you recently, I think, announced a Series A. So you're out of hiding and you're ready to rock and roll, to my understanding. That's right, Al. And and thanks so much for having me. But yes, a few months ago, we announced our Series A. So yeah, definitely ready to rock and roll right now. All right. Very good. So look, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words, if you wouldn't mind. I looked at your LinkedIn and there's a part that says always interested in taking on the next hard problem. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your own words, and talk about these hard problems that you're attracted to. Thank you so much for having me. Been a product and growth executive in Silicon Valley for a long time. So had the the honor of leading teams at companies like LinkedIn, Instacart, eBay, Wealthfront. Have seen companies grow, uh, have seen companies achieve great success and have seen them try to do that while using data. Seeing the ecosystem around these companies grow as well. And in terms of hard problems, uh, great question. That's one of my favorite lines from my LinkedIn profile. It's actually one of these realizations I've had some years ago when I was trying to figure out, you know, what motivates me? And I ultimately came to the conclusion that, you know, I'm essentially a problem solver. Uh, You give me a tough problem that maybe requires some creativity or perseverance to solve it. And that's what gets me excited. That's what gets me up in the morning, you know, thinking about how do we solve that problem? So that's where that line comes from. Well, that makes sense. So you and me both. I'm sure a lot of people consider themselves problem solvers, but there's some that just like, you know, the harder, the better. You know, those that make me uncomfortable are actually more comfortable for me. I don't know that that's the way for everybody. I mean, look, I'm always, I just like being uncomfortable from that perspective. Look, I go through your LinkedIn and I do, I mean, these are pretty cool jobs that you've had. Senior Director of Product Management, LinkedIn, VP Product and Growth, Wealthfront, Chief Growth Officer, Instacart, and now you're founder and CEO of Anomalo. Is the common theme there, you know, the common problem, I would say, is it data quality or data? Well, to some extent, all of those jobs actually had a very heavy data component to them. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, but if you're if you're doing product work, right, if you're trying to build the right product or grow a product for one of these big consumer brands like a LinkedIn or a Facebook or an Instacart, it's a heavily data-driven discipline. You're constantly trying to figure out, well, who is using my product? What are they using their for who are the best users and the worst users, you're trying to experiment by putting out different versions of your product to different users and seeing how they react to it and how they engage with those. So it's heavily, heavily data driven. So 
one of the common threads through all of those is not so much, you know, data quality. It's that all of those required lots of data for me and my team to be successful. And as you may imagine, that almost always caused us to run in to data quality issues, right? Even if we weren't, you know, the ones really solving them, we were impacted by them. You know, that's what inspired myself and my co-founder, Jeremy, to, to start Amalo because we were at Instacart together. And Instacart is, is as sophisticated as you can find out there. You know, big snowflake data warehouse, machine learning for everything. You know, one of the most sophisticated organizations in terms of using data that you can imagine. And we were constantly being impacted by data quality. So I, I think you answered part of my question that I'll get back to you in a second, but what does a growth officer at Instacart do? The primary job is to how can we get, you know, more users buying groceries through Instacart and doing so more frequently, right? How can we grow Instacart's business of delivering groceries to our customers? Uh, and so it's pretty wide ranging, right? Some of it is product work, which is, is there something we can build? Somehow we can we improve the experience of Instacart in some way to you know, lower the friction of buying groceries, of finding what folks want, of getting the kind of uh, delivery experience that they want. Some of it has to do with other ways of growing Instacart. For example, my team spent a lot of time on geographic prioritization and expansion uh, of Instacart. You know, Instacart by itself, because we have shoppers, you know, delivering groceries in all these local markets, you have to be mindful in terms of, well, where do we operate? Which zip codes, right, have Instacart or should have Instacart? And so my team spent a lot of time doing those kinds of things. It's basically a wide-ranging role, you know, whose focus is what are the things we can do, whether operationally, strategically, or product-wise, to make Instacart grow? Let me ask you, and I know you're not here to talk about Instacart per se. We're talking here to talk about Anomalo, but there was a reason yeah. you went from Instacart to here. What is the biggest detractor? I mean, what is the friction in Instacart? Because when I sit here and think about it, I'm thinking, look, I would love to have my groceries delivered to my doorstep. I mean, I use Amazon a lot, or at least my wife does. And I mean, there's people showing on my door all the time, but I honestly, I don't use Instacart. Uh, I don't know why, to be honest with you. So what do you see as the biggest area of friction? It's a few things. I mean, one of the easiest ones is Instacart is just not available, right, where you are. And so okay. that was a problem in the early days. It's less common now. Generally, Instacart is available where everyone is. A second one is Instacart is available, but the service doesn't have your favorite grocery store. So this oh, may not be a well-known fact, and this was surprising to me when I started but there's incredible loyalty that people have with their grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. They get kind of attuned to the selection and the exact items they can get and, and the specialty items that might be available there. And so very often we saw that if we offered Instacart somewhere, but we didn't have someone's favorite store. They just wouldn't buy because the difficulty of adjusting to a different store from which to buy your groceries uh, it's sufficiently difficult, sufficiently mentally taxing that it just wasn't worth, you know, the convenience of delivery. And then 
one of the other ones that I don't know if we'll ever get over. Yeah, I, I don't know this about you, uh, but a lot of people actually enjoy the experience of grocery shopping. You know, there's a sort of sensory experience, the smells, the visual stimuli, thinking about how you're going to consume these things or how you're going to put them together into a meal. And so that kind of enjoyment, we at least found very, very difficult to replicate in the Instacart experience. You know, what's funny, kind of unrelated, but related. I was at a Home Depot right when we were starting off on COVID and, and lockdown and that kind of thing. There's this kid next to me grabbing, he's looking, you can see he's flustered. And I'm looking at him, you know, and I'm, I'm getting whatever I need to get at Home Depot. I do a lot of home projects myself. I said, what's the problem? He goes, I, I'm looking for a jigsaw blade. Do you know what a jigsaw blade is? And I said, why are you at Home Depot and you don't know what a jigs? He goes, I'm uh, I'm here to get things and, and deliver it to the house. You know, he he was one of these hired hands or whatever. I think, I don't know if he was hired by Home Depot or otherwise. So I followed this guy around for like 20 minutes helping him find all this stuff. And I said, what the hell am I doing? This is your job. Yeah. <laughs> I followed the kid and I'm putting stuff in his cart for him to help him. I'm like, all right, we got to quit this. I should be getting paid at this point. But uh, it's yeah. funny. I think a lot of people are doing that. I Instacart is interesting. So at some point, like any of the companies that you've been at, every company has a data problem as far as I'm concerned. That's why we have a yes. podcast on it. And everybody has a data quality problem. I presume, I'm not picking on Instacart here because it's everybody's problem. Something must have compelled you to say, you know what? This is so significant a problem. And because you're a problem solver, you say, I, I solve hard problems. I can go solve this. Made you go branch out on your own. What was that trigger? It wasn't one thing. It was actually several things. I'll tell you a couple of fun stories from the Instacart days. And again, remember, Instacart is, is probably as, as sophisticated as you can get you know, in data in terms of the people there and the tools that they have. And yet one day, I remember coming in to the Instacart offices, you know, pre-pandemic, right? We, we came to the office every day and everyone was going crazy on my team what's going on and they're like orders from Costco are down by 50% today. Right. And Costco is of course a big retailer on Instacart, right? Big source of revenue and orders for the company. And when orders are down unexpectedly, it's actually bad for everybody, right? It's bad for Instacart. They make less money. It's bad for Costco. They sell less things. It's bad for the shoppers, you know, like, like your home Depot guy, because they've signed up for certain hours to work and get jobs, and suddenly the jobs are, are not there, you know, for them to do. So it's it's bad for everybody. So everyone jumped into this, you know, did we break something? Did we ship some bad code? Did we have something bad on the site? You know, is the Costco logo not showing up on the right pages? Uh, you know, we're digging deep. Turns out, just a data quality issue. So... <laughs> the way Instacart works, you know, every day we would get inventory feeds, and this still happens today. Every day, inventory feeds, basically from every grocery store, right, that we work with, would send us a feed and would say, here's what's on the shelves of my grocery store. And that's obviously important if we're going to send someone into that store to, uh, you know, pick up groceries for delivery. We need to know what's on the shelves of the store. And this particular day, Costco decided to send us a feed but they omitted anything in the meat department. 
So no chicken, no beef, no hot dogs, nothing. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, our systems were very dutiful in, in interpreting these fees. We're like, well, whatever the grocery store says is on their shelf is what's on their shelf. And so our product literally took all the meat items off Costco's storefront on Instacart. So if you were going to Instacart and you were shopping from Costco and you searched for chicken, you got nothing, right? If you search for beef, you got nothing. Yeah, that's a killer. And yeah, believe it or not, people do not complete their grocery store order if they can't find Oh, meat. I'm sure of it. <laughs> and the risk there is they may never come back to that. I mean, you, exactly. you probably know this better than anybody. I mean, it's the empty cart or leaving your cart, whatever, uh, unattended and never coming back to it, never coming back at all. That's the- That's right. That's right. And And think about- their perception of that experience. Now they think Instacart is broken because of course their local Costco has meat, right? You know, it's inconceivable that a Costco would actually not have meat. And so obviously Instacart is broken. So they may not even come back as a user of Instacart ever again because they've had such a terrible experience and literally a pure data quality issue. If we had any kind of system, any kind of tool watching those inventory feeds and saying, hey, something is weird here. It's unusual that there would be exactly zero items in the meat department of a Costco, right? We would have caught this. We would have caught this instantly, right? But we didn't. So I know you. there are multiple triggers. I mean, it's got to be multiple triggers before you really decide to go out on your own. But was that the, the straw that broke the camel's back or it was just culmination of things like that? And you said, look, I've got an idea here and I can solve the data quality problems. Yeah, it was a culmination of a bunch of things. That was just one of the more egregious examples, but I'll give you another one. We had a team for a while that was working on our geographic expansion strategy at Instacart. So figuring out which zip codes to light up with Instacart service. And they had this you know, very sophisticated data-driven process to prioritize zip codes. And one day I realized that they were making some unusual choices in these zip codes. I'm like, that doesn't really make sense. Can you show me the data? And so after some investigation, turns out the data source they were using to run their super sophisticated process hadn't been updated in six months. You know, their data was stale. So it was a culmination of all of these things set against the context of just how sophisticated Instacart was. I mean, this wasn't a company that was bad at data. This was a company that was world-class fantastic at data and had internal systems, had internal data quality tools, right? And yet still could not detect and deal with these problems in any reasonable way. Well, I get it. I see it every day. So tell me then, what does Anomalo do? How do you solve problems or the data quality problem? We've established Everybody's trying to solve that problem. What do you bring different to the table? And this was a big insight from our experience and Instacart out. You know, Instacart had an internal system, and it's what a lot of folks try to use for data quality and a lot of what you see in the marketplace. It was a rules-based system, right? So in order to kind of define what high-quality data is and detect issues, you would compose some rules for your data and data that didn't meet those rules would you know, trigger alerts or notifications to tell you, hey, there's something wrong. And what I saw at Instacart is that that approach just didn't work. 
someone would have to do all the work to write all these rules. Worse yet, as your data changes, you launch new geographies, as you change your product, those rules would grow out of date and suddenly you'd have to write new rules or, or otherwise change them. And you couldn't possibly envision all the rules you needed to write anyway. You know, no one wrote a rule that said Costco's meat department needs to have more than zero items. <laughs> Very least it should throw yeah. up some flags, right? If it, no meat, yes. no chicken, red flag yeah. goes up. Somebody needs to dive yeah. in there. Exactly. <laughs> and so the approach we took with Anomalo is to say, look, this sort of manual work of writing rules is just not going to work. Can we have machine learning? Can we have machines write the rules themselves for this data and maintain them over time? So that's the big difference. We take a machine learning first approach. So when you tell Anomalo, hey, monitor you know, this table or monitor this feed of data for us, we're going to have a machine learning model that's trained on that data and sort of understands what that data typically looks like. And when new data comes in, when that feed is updated, you know, uh, this morning, it's going to look at the new data and say, hey, the, the new data that just come in, is it consistent what this data typically looks like? And if it's not, how bad of a deviation is it? And is it bad enough for us to tell someone? Sorry to interrupt, but it does raise yeah. that red flag then. That's what the machine learning That's right. That's right. But it raises it without you having to tell it what to look for. It sort of automatically learns what's normal, what's typical, and can raise flags when something atypical happens uh, in the data without you telling it you know, to look for a particular thing. Time out for a second, because here's what I hear you saying. You say, look, we're, we're writing all these rules manually. Nobody in this case, your example, I think it's a great example we can spin off on. And that is um, nobody wrote a rule that said, hey, if there's zero meat, you know, raise a red flag. We should have maybe what we didn't. Now we've got machine learning that can do that. And it'll raise that red flag from a statistical analysis perspective or something that says, look, this can't be true. However, having just going through COVID, you must have like red flags going through the roof right now with no meat, no chicken. Now, how is that going to affect the data set? It's going to be confused as hell. <laughs> oh, great question, Al. That's the other power of machine learning is that it can adjust on the fly, right? It's not stuck at a particular point in time. So in Anomalo's case, you know, when we build one of these machine learning models for you know, a feed from Costco, we actually retrain it every single day. And so it's able to very rapidly adjust to these kinds of changes. If suddenly, because of COVID, you know, the volatility, the variation in these counts goes through the roof, right? The machine learning model will notice that. And maybe the first few days it will say, hey, something's weird here, right? And everyone will look at that and say, yes, of course, it's COVID. You know, let's ignore. But after a while, it will say, okay, well, this seems to be the new normal in this data. So let's adjust. Let's tolerate. And then when COVID is over and those things tighten up, it will adjust again. So we've been talking about the use case of something like Instacart, which is a great use case, also where you came from. So it's right on the ready. But where else can we use uh, Anomalo solution? I mean, what other use cases? Any use case? Or is it limited to a certain sector or industry? No, I mean, we've done it all. 
uh, at this point out. I'll give you a few examples. You know, we have multiple customers in financial services that are looking at transactions, that are looking at balances, that are looking at those kinds of details that are very important to their business and looking for unusual situations there or are looking for unusual situations in third-party fees that they get, right? The credit scores that financial services firms consume, they don't generate, they get from a third party. Uh, and sometimes those arrive in a weird way. We have customers in e-commerce that are looking for, you know, unusual order patterns or unusual prices uh, in their services uh, or unusual traffic patterns or breakdowns in their machine learning pipelines where data that they're going to use for recommendations, for example, in an e-commerce setting, you know, additional items for you to buy uh, might have moved in some unusual way, which increases the risk that the recommendations will be poor. We have folks that are, you know, huge publishers on the internet with massive traffic, looking at traffic data and marketing data and Facebook ads and Google ads and those kinds of things. So pretty much any data set that you can imagine inside an enterprise, you probably want something like Anomaly running on it to let you know about unusual things that are happening there. I am starting to get the picture of where the name Anomalo may have mm. came from. Could yes. that be like a short version of Anomaly? Something yes. in there, maybe? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was based off Anomaly. Uh, you know, in the in the early days, you can classify some of the technologies we use as anomaly detection, right? And so uh, we decided to drop the Y and add an O and anomalo. I like it. So tell me a bit about the tech. I'm still curious is, you know, we got a lot of companies that are trying to solve this problem that, that have machine learning. I got to believe you have something uh, obviously different to offer. So Talk to me a little bit about the, the tech, how it's written, what tools you use, if you don't mind. You don't have to give me all the secret sauce, but I want to know a little bit about it, which differentiates Anomalo from any other company or any homegrown solutions. We found that it's actually pretty rare that folks are using true machine learning to solve this problem. You know, A lot of the rule-based approaches you hear may have a tiny component of sort of machine intelligence in them, but they're basically rules that human rights. The core difference of Anomalo is machine learning is the core. We are literally building an unsupervised machine learning model on every table that you want us to monitor. That's gonna learn the sort of ins and outs, the typical patterns of that table. And from that, uh, you know, you can choose to use that model in a bunch of different ways. You can actually write rules with the context of that model, if you wanted to focus on something very particular, or you can just choose to receive kind of a stream of things that the model detects. But that's very unusual. Our model is also you know, a little bit different than other models that you may have seen, because it takes in the whole data set, right? All, a lot of other models and a lot of other approaches will make you define you know, a particular column in your data that maybe they're gonna look at or analyze, or they'll, they'll analyze each column individually. We are looking at the table of data as a whole. So we're actually gonna spot some things that others might miss, like changes in relationships between columns uh, over time, or other structural changes in your data set, which if you're looking just one column at a time, you may not be able to spot. 
those are really the big differences. The other difference that our customers appreciate is that, and partly because we're able to automate so many things through machine learning, we're a no-code you know, tool, right? You don't have to write any code or integrate us in any pipelines. Everything that you do in Anomalo, you can do through a nice UI where you connect us to your data warehouse, select data sets that you want to monitor, and kind of away we go. Doesn't that have a tendency, or how, how do you not become over-generic? I mean, if it's just one code, it's not tailored to a client's data set. I mean, how does it still have the relevance and the, uh, you know, finds the patterns that you need it to unique to somebody's business solution? Yeah. So it's one machine learning model, but remember, it retrains itself on a particular data set. A parallel that you might see in some work in deep learning and NLP these days is you might have a foundational model right? That when you give it a specific problem, it fine tunes itself for that specific problem, right? But it starts kind of a foundational uh, point. It's the same way for us. So we have one machine learning model, but when you activate it for a new table, we actually start fine tuning and calibrating that model to learn just your table, right? And so the challenge we face is not so much you know, are we adapting to the customer's data set? We are through this sort of fine tuning and calibration process. Challenge we face is our model, you know, generic enough to detect all the types of issues that we might want to detect. Uh, and so that's uh, something that we keep an eye on. Uh, and that's something that, you know, we innovate on in terms of making sure our model is generic enough to find all the things that the customer might want to see. Tell me a little bit about the technology behind it, if you don't I mean. Are you using notebooks to create it? To what are you are you coding in Python? Or I'm just curious. Yeah, it's all Python. You know the language, the language of data science. So it's all <laughs> Python, right? Heavy use of pandas, right, for data processing, and then through Python we integrate with with the data warehouse to actually get at the data, right? And so we tend to sort of have all the machine learning in, in pandas and we have a layer in, in Python that's also kind of translating the data we need into queries to the data warehouse uh, where we execute those queries with SQL to actually get that data back. Um, and so we actually try to have the data warehouse do all the work it can to summarize data for us and, and aggregate it in ways that are useful. And then on top of that, we run our machine learning in Python. Is this you writing a lot of the code yourself? Well, we have a pretty good team now. So yep. I, I did write quite a bit of the code in the early days. Uh, yep. And of course, my co-founder, Jeremy, is you know, a world-class machine learning expert. So I credit all the machine learning uh, in our early days uh, to him. But yeah, I wrote a lot of the code that actually you know, generates SQL queries to the data warehouses uh, because I've been a kind of SQL junkie for many, many years. Uh, so that fit my fit my skill set well, but we now have a pretty good team that does much more code writing than than I do. Sounds like your Jeremy is my Kate. She makes me look good, you know. Gets out in front of everything, and I claim it as mine. And I'm like, yes. And she does all the hard work behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> team effort. Team effort. All the team way. effort. Team mm -hmm. effort, for team sure. Effort. Yeah. yeah, it's one team. So you are the CEO then? He's the CTO, or how's that work? 
That's right. That's exactly how it works. So if I'm a customer listening, I guess I'd have two questions. I mean, if I have X problem, when should I be thinking of you? And part B to that is, is, you know, what I have to do to get this implemented? You know, is it, is it a simple process? Should I expect months? Should I expect weeks? What am I up against? What's your yeah. two minute pitch? I would say anyone who has significant data that's trying to use that data to create value for their company and has experienced issues of data quality, you know, dashboards being broken, data coming in wrong, analysis. It's like everybody. Answer. It's like yeah, everybody. <laughs> you should give an envelope thing because we can help with all of those issues. Uh, and it's pretty easy to set up. You know, we just connect to your data warehouse directly to get up the data. So you might need to set up some credentials for us in your data warehouse. And we're able to deploy an envelope for you, uh, you know, in under an hour. That's what you want to do. So you're saying not even a day, an hour, I can get this thing connected. You'll see, when will you see results? Right away. <laughs> Minutes later. What's your monetization strategy? I mean, we're an enterprise subscription product, right? So our customers pay, uh, you know, uh, sign up for long-term contracts. And, and so this isn't a one-time, you see, show me my anomaly. It's, I'll show your anomaly daily, sign up for the subscription, SaaS-based right. tool. That's right. That's right. And we also, in addition to a standard SaaS, we'll also do an NBPC deploy. So we'll deploy into the customer's cloud environment, you know, where they we can guarantee that their data will never leave their environment while they're using Anomalo. Subscription product, and, and actually it's the daily monitoring, the regular monitoring, that's the most value. Because if you just run something like this one time and see some issues, that's great. But what happens when you have an issue next week? With Anomalo running all the time and monitoring your data continuously, you learn about that issue right away. Do you have a trial period or something like you, you put your money where your mouth is for like a certain yeah. period? Hook them? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can usually try the product free for a month or two yep. um, on your data before you have to subscribe. and and. We love doing that because there's nothing like seeing it work on your data, right? And seeing a real issue from your data set. You know, we can give you the best demo imaginable with you know our own data sets or fake data or what have you, but there's nothing like actually seeing a real mm -hmm. issue in your data that we found. So that's why we offer the trial for sure. Kate, why don't you take the wheel for a minute and, uh, you know, one thing I thought I would start with, you were telling me about a Forbes article, something about Anomalo watching your data or something. Could you elaborate on what you were talking about there? And then, uh... Elliot, this has just been wonderful to listen to you and Al chat. I loved the Forbes article that was titled Anomalo watches your data for weirdness. And I think we've really been talking around the idea of weirdness, but do you want to tell and say a few more things on that? Tell me a little bit more about that or say anything else about it. I thought weirdness was just a very creative word yeah, uh, to describe what we do, but it's exactly what we talked about, right? We're watching your data for, you know, situations where your data has changed or shifted in some way mm -hmm. from what you would normally expect from what has came before. And so you can label that weirdness, yeah. right? This this data is weird because it's changed or you can label it an anomaly, you know, something, or you can label it as drift, right, in the data. But that's what we do, right? Fundamentally at our core, 
were watching your data for these unusual changes. And so I thought weirdness was a fun word. <laughs> so that is a fun word. It's very catchy and makes it accessible for many different readers. It leads me to think, it sounds like you all are having some great success, great brains working on this, finding data weirdness for your customers that they can then take action on. Where do you go from here? How do you future-proof this technology? How do you improve it and get better? There's still a lot more work to do, uh, despite the traction that we've had. But the way we continue to improve is we listen to our customers, right? So we are we are constantly talking to our customers and seeing what what's working for you, what isn't working for you. Are there data sets where you found a lot of value? Are there places where you wish you could use Anomaly, but you have some hurdle to doing it or some barrier? Uh, and so that's really how we we evolve the product, and that's how we we continue to innovate. So I'd imagine really leveraging those growth skills that you've had in so many roles before this is going to be a differentiator for you, right? You're able to bring that forward and continue to propel that growth. I hope so, Kate. You know, lots <laughs> of folks have those growth skills now, and, and we're obviously in a very different business than I was in those large consumer companies uh, like Instacart. But yes, I think having the perspective on growth and, and how you grow is, is quite helpful. So that gives me a great entree. How is it to be the one in the big chair leading a team to success? <laughs> you were doing that before, right? But I can imagine that maybe it has a little bit of a different feel to it now. How is it? You know, to be honest with you, it feels about the same. When you've been an executive at these these hyper-growth unicorn companies, you've seen it all, <laughs> I feel like. And so, of course, you know, I have some more responsibility and a bigger title now, but, you know, the, the level of busyness I have and the level mm -hmm. of interactions and the level of uh, focus I need to have and, and prioritization is pretty similar to large, mm -hmm. to running a team at, at one of these, you know, fairly rapidly growing companies. Then what has surprised you about being in this role now? What's different? It's a pretty different role in that it's not a consumer role, right? Okay. We're not building a product for kind of end users, right? Folks ordering groceries through Instacart. We're building a product for businesses. And having been a buyer of products such as myself on the other side, you know, I, I was actually quite surprised, at least in our early days, of how nice everyone is. It's true. I mean, when you're a new company, right, no matter how cool your product is, I mean, most people don't care about you that much. And so it was still quite refreshing to say that when you connected Good. to someone and, and pitched your product to them or, uh, or uh, you know, asked for their feedback, right, folks were generally quite supportive and nice of, of new innovation of new companies. And that surprised me. I thought it'd be, uh, you know, a much, much tougher wall to penetrate to get, mm -hmm. uh, to get to folks and to get our first customers. Well, my other tangent as I was hearing you and Al chat was thinking about all the skills that you're needing, right? These are highly in-demand skills. We are in one of the strangest job markets in history, and then we have that little thing called COVID on top of it. Right. How are you getting this intellectual capital to your company and getting them to do such amazing things? I mean, that I imagine would be quite a trick. 
you know, honestly, it's as hard for us as it is for anyone else. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're in a similar boat. We're fortunate in that, you know, myself and my co-founder, Jeremy, have, have been around and have pretty mm. extensive networks that we can call upon. And so Jeremy in particular is a, is a pretty well-known person in the machine learning community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been able to get quite a few folks interested and on board through through those relationships and those networks. So so that's been helpful. But yeah, we're, you know, now that we're growing much faster, Kate, we're in the same boat as everyone right. else, where there's only so many people we can get from our network. We have to go out there to the marketplace and, and compete with everyone else uh, for talent. And yeah, it's tough. But we found that we do have a pretty unique product mm-hmm. uh, and that folks that really believe in data and, and wish that the world had higher quality data and was more data driven and more sophisticated in terms of usage of data, get pretty excited uh, mm-hmm. about what we're doing. And so that's been a big reason why we've been able to attract folks, even when we you know can't outbid larger competitors. There's a lot of land grab happening out there for talent. So that's, that's remarkable to hear. What do you wish you had told yourself when you first started the company that you didn't do? What do you wish that you had done that you didn't do? That is a good one. I mean, so many things. Thank well, pick one that I can learn from, right? So pick one kind of don't pick something that is, I wish I had written this algorithm better because I'm never going to be able to use that. Yeah. But what, yeah. give me something that's just kind of a human being a human that you wish you had done. One of the biggest things probably is we started with sort of the technology first, with the machine mm-hmm. learning technology first, and sort of built the, the experience of the product, the UI, and the, and the way you get into it later. You know, because we thought the technology was the big differentiator, is going to solve all these problems, it's going to be obvious. Yes, uh, yes, they will doing. see it. They will they get will it. They will see it. They will yeah. see it. They will understand. We will show it to them. Right. I would have probably built those in parallel if I were to do it over again, because no matter how great your technology is, people need a great crystal clear user interface to understand what it's doing, especially for things as complicated as machine learning, right? Where, you know, yeah. it's, it's not obvious why the model said that there's something wrong with your data today. You really have to understand it. Uh, and so it was really building that, that additional layer mm-hmm. to the product that allowed us uh, to get the traction that we did. And I kind of wished we had we had done that uh, earlier in the process. You know, that's just a great reminder to have empathy in parallel with the hard technology problems you solve. That totally makes so much sense. And thank you for sharing. Because I think in every time you're solving a hard problem, if you forget how to make sense of it, and if you forget who's going to benefit from solving the hard problem, it's going to be lost right? Because not everybody can get it as innately. So that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Absolutely. Al, I loved having my time. This is lovely. Thank you. I like it. Back over to you. I'm good. Well, I'm better at listening than I thought I'd be. Very good. It's because you do this so well. Hey, I got one additional one on top of that. You talked about your pitch. And what I've found with any pitch is that it's going to fit under four categories if a client is going to buy one, is it's going to drive cost savings. Hey, this is going to save me money. Makes no brainer pays for itself. 
Second one is revenue generation. Third is mitigated risk. Fourth is market expansion. What does your solution fall under? Al, I, I hate to do this to you. I would argue there's a fifth one. Okay. Which is it Been saves for me this. time. It saves me time. It allows me to do something faster. It allows me to make my team more productive and efficient. And so I would argue we fall under two categories. We, we actually do have a pretty significant component of risk mitigation, right? If you find issues in your data, you're less likely to make bad decisions with data that has issues. But we also have a huge efficiency benefit for data teams, where instead of having to you know, fight fires when these issues come up or react to issues or manually try to detect and investigate them, we enable them to be proactive. We enable them to understand what's going on with their data. And we also save them investigation time. We also, we do things like automatic root causing uh, mm -hmm. of data issues uh, in a bunch of cases. Uh, and so we really give back a lot of control uh, and a lot of ability to be proactive uh, versus reactive to, to these data teams that are operating the data stacks in the enterprise. Makes sense. Good answer. I still say that may fit under cost savings if you're saving time, but I, you did sure. well. I like it. Thank you for being on, on the show. Before you go, what does Mr. Elliot do for fun? Uh, well, in COVID times, I don't know <laughs> what I do for fun. Uh, don't say you, know. you work more. That, that's not a good answer. No, no. I, I spent quite a bit of time with my family. Uh, and of course, I read and watch TV. But in pre-COVID times, I'm a huge traveler. You know, I'm a huge uh, traveler. I've traveled, been to all seven continents. Uh, I enjoy wildlife photography. Uh, and so I travel to places with amazing animals uh, that I can take pictures from. And then, of course, I, I enjoy having dinner with my family and my friends uh, and trying new foods uh, and experiencing new things. We got a lot in common there. Right? What's your favorite place you've been when you've traveled then? Wow. Uh, there's got to um, give me a top. You can't. I know you love all your children, but you got to pick one. Oh, man, Al, that's the cruelest question of the day. Wow. Whoa. That My podcast, so I get asked these questions. So <laughs> you got to pick one today. If you had to pick, uh, it's like a song. If I pick a song today, it could be this. Next day, it could be something else. But All right. Okay, I, so I, that's your out right there. You can just say it's time bound, right? Yes, yes. Yes. Well, I'm going to say, uh, you know, in the interest of picking something a little off the beaten path, I'm going to say Botswana was the favorite you know, place I've been. Uh, Botswana is just north of South Africa. Um, it's just an amazing place. Uh, if you love nature, if you love animals, uh, it's just an amazing place to visit. I am going to have to even look that up. Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> and what is your favorite book today that you would encourage? What, what do you recommend most? Maybe I'll ask it that way. Wow. I mean, you might have to give me a genre. Uh, recently, I've been rereading the, the Foundation series from Asimov uh, based on the TV show that has recently come out. I so have those, yes. Rereading that. And, you know, in, in, in business literature, I've, been, I've started to read Amp It Up from the CEO of Snowflake. Uh, and it's quite good. Uh, so I would recommend that. 
terrific. And I did, yeah, I know Botswana. I, now I look at it, yes. Uh, yes, did, you do. Yes. Did you, did you go on a, a, a tour or anything out there? I mean, that, that's got to be your spot of a, yeah, a safari. safari. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I've been there, you know, in a few places there. And we stayed in various types of camps, right? And kind of tents uh, in, out in the wild, in the bush. Uh, as they say, and every morning we'd get into a Jeep and we'd go and we, we'd see what we would see, right? Uh, and it's just such amazing territory, right? You know, to even traverse the territory, you know, the Jeep had to go underwater a few times or go through, you know, rough off-road sections and you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of just part of the fun is even just driving around. Fantastic. So we got to know a little bit about you, know about your, your company, what you solve, uh, gave us some insight into data quality. I think all in all, a great podcast. Thank you for being here, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Al. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for having me. You bet. Anytime. And listeners, thank you. As always, almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Let us know what you're thinking. And I will see you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, Let's go over and out. Oh.